Hello, and welcome to the 7th English Network podcast, where today we have myself, Ted. I'm Emily. I'm Alex. So today we are going to be looking at the poem War Photographer by Caroline Duffy. Um, now, usually I would be passing over to the very capable historical hands of Al, <laughs> but unfortunately uh, you are with me today. Uh, how I've do you been, feel about I've, that, Al? I've been dethroned. I'm no longer history. You take but... one week off and your role is taken away from you. Yeah, that, that's the way it should be. Indeed, I'm, indeed. Yeah, Alas. So there's, I don't think context is particularly significant for this poem. It's more kind of the message it's conveying and kind of the story that the, the, that we see in the poem. So I think the main thing to bear in mind is that Caroline Duffy is, you know, an extraordinarily, possibly the most famous poet in Britain today. She was Poet Laureate for the Nation. She's written kind of so many poems which are explored at both GCSE and A-level. And I think her kind of... Her, that is the sign of a good poet. It is the sign of a good poet, dare I say. Who am I to judge? Um, but she, you know, she, she really wants to provoke thought with a poem. She wants to kind of sometimes take a controversial angle. So, for instance, with the poem Valentine, she kind of has a go at these cliched romantic gifts. In uh, Human Interest, she's looking at kind of the the psychological makeup of someone who's perhaps murdered his, his lover, or whatever it might be. So she's always taking these controversial stances and looking to provoke thought, looking to kind of hold a mirror up to today's society. And that's, for me, as much context as I think you really need to know going into this poem. Uh, how have I done, Al? Good, but I would just say as well, we say this in, on previous episodes, just be careful about your distinction between the speaker slash narrator and the actual poet, because the poet is not the speaker in this sense. Absolutely. It's not autobiographical. Uh, but she was, she does have friends who were war photographers and that's where she, that's what she's based, kind of like the factual, um, well, that's what she's based in. I think you could say, obviously, as a modern poet, she's trying to, like Ted says, shine a light on the nation's issues. Mm -hmm. Now, we know even from the title, this is about a modern conflict, you know. We're looking at war photographers potentially in a modern conflict setting. And the idea that now, because of the media, especially social media, we can interpret it as, yeah. the nation is almost becoming desensitised to these images of war. And I think she's trying to question through her speaker, through her narrator, how society views war. Are we becoming desensitised? Do we see it? Do we ever think about the person behind the camera? Mm -hmm. And the answer often is no, we don't. Yeah, uh, yeah I, th I think it's one of the things that makes this poem so kind of challenging and so interesting is the, the way that it's looking at that, that issue of perhaps being desensitised by violence. And I, I, what, I think why I like this poem is I like the fact that it's got this quite interesting character at its heart, who's quite complex, who in parts is opaque. It's hard to really kind of work out his motivations and his thoughts. Um, and I think in many ways that, that kind of character reflects some of the issues we have in our society. Yeah. Are our motives altruistic or prurient in nature? Why do we watch these photos? Why do we have them taken? Why do these people do these jobs? Is it mm -hmm. kind of like a, an industry of kind of... Voyeurism, um, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it, I think it's just interesting, that element. Um, yeah. Thoughts, Al? Um, I echo much of what you guys said. Um, I really think it's all about, I'll talk about it kind of later when we look at the actual language analysis, but it is all about uh, the way that we, not only the way that we look at conflict, but the way we look at death as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what it means to us when it's not, when it's not right, when it's not happening to us, do we kind of attribute the same value mm -hmm. or the same seriousness? Um, and I think this poem kind of explores that quite, quite well. Absolutely. So uh, I'm going to kick off the analysis. Uh, and as I'm a big fan of structure, I always think the first and last lines of the poem are very, very important. Um, so looking at the first line of the poem, in his dark room, he is finally alone. So yeah, this is a fairly innocuous line in some elements. But when we look at the whole stanza, there's a few things we realize straight away. 
So obviously in this room, you know, it's a dark room, so it's fairly dark, of course. There's no light. But on a deeper level, as you know, students of poetry, what does that mean? Does, what does that lack of light symbolise? Does it perhaps show us that he's cut himself off from other people, that he lives a secluded life, that the horrors to which he's, he's privy mean he can't kind of have a normal conversation, he can't talk about what he's experienced, quite similar to the narrator in the poem we looked at last week, Remains. Does the nature of what he does mean he can't really participate in society? Mm-hmm. And then as we read on in the stanza, we get the idea that this room is bathed in a, in a quite a sinister, ominous red light. And I think that adds another important element to this as well. He's, he's kind of bathing in this red light to develop these photographs. And again, you know, colour imagery, what does this red light symbolise? Well, it could be the, the kind of the blood which he immerses himself in, the, the kind of the gory images which he constantly witnesses. And then also, you know, thinking of almost Lady Macbeth and the blood in her hands, and again, linking back to last week's poem's remains, it finished on that image of those bloody hands. Does the red of the room perhaps symbolise that he is guilty for what he does? He recognises there's a voyeuristic element to what he does, that it's perhaps manipulative in nature, mm-hmm. that he is a capitalist of grief. You know, there's an uncomfortable element to what he's doing that we see as the poem goes on. Can I come in with a, yeah. an early reference? Of course. Yeah, it's, Finally, yeah. The, the world has been turned upside down because um, I'm doing an early reference. Um, I was just thinking about of a, a quote from True Deceptive. Yeah, um, when he Great said, When he says that, um, that your life is a dream, everyone's life is a dream that they have inside a locked room mm-hmm. um, and the dream of being a person. And if you're talking about like the room as being his his own psyche, his own yeah. consciousness, it's this it's a it's a place that's dark, um, and that all, all the connotations that come with that is that he's got dark thoughts or he's, mm-hmm. he's had dark experiences. Um, but the fact that he's so caught up and so locked up in that, and I think if you look later in the poem as well, we, we, he he seems so detached, he seems so uh, separate, mm-hmm. not only from uh, where he's been, but where he actually lives, so where he's yeah. based and yeah. where he works. He's detached from both of those places. Um, that he seems to be locked within that room and that dark room alone is kind of, that's where he's destined to kind of like live out his days. I, I love that. That's, that's fantastic. Thank I'm, you. I'm stealing that. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, just bring it back to, to structure, that the fact that this is the first image the poem opens with, that really sets the tone. It sets the kind of, the, the feel for the poem, that this is quite a, a melancholic, it's almost too light a word. It's quite, it's quite mm. a dark, reflective quite a moody poem and I think that first line really develops that tone I like how he said develops that because that's what he's doing isn't it yeah. he is literally there developing his images so I suppose many of you you only know cameras through your phone you always have it on you but when you take photographs yeah. in a traditional sense they require developing so you take the negative frames which are originally in black and white you have to develop them in darkness or they are sort of ruined by the light Mm -hmm. and that red light will help. So the idea that he is literally there developing the images, but metaphorically he's there sort of dealing with his emotions, trying to sort of come to terms with how he feels about it. But you're right in saying there is really very little emotion from him in here. Mm -hmm. And it's all really, I think, quite provocative as in it's trying to provoke what we should feel about him rather than what he feels himself. So just looking at that second line, with spools of suffering set out in ordered rows. So what do we, what do we think we can talk, discuss about that? I always think that these ordered rows are sort of synonymous with the idea he's trying to bring order to chaos. So yeah. he's been out there. He's captured hundreds of agonies in black and white, which is a quote from later on in the poem. He's captured all these images of suffering. You know, he's experienced death upon death and horror upon horror. Yet now he's trying to add a sense of order to that. 
Um, there's another interpretation. One of my pupils came up with this and, and I just loved it when they said it once. Um, they looked at how structurally uh, the poem is set out in stanzas of six lines and there are four of them. Mm-hmm. And we looked at this idea of how images quite often when printed are, are of that measurement six by four. That's a common sort of measurement that you print pictures. And and a whole argument you can have about this poem is that Duffy is trying to give what is usually two-dimensional, so an image that is printed in the newspaper, in the media. She's trying to give it a third and a fourth dimension. And we see later in the poem how she brings those images to life. And she tries to say, you know, we might walk past them in the newsagents, we might see them on a billboard, but we will just see these momentary glimpses of what is an experience. Mm -hmm. And I almost think this whole poem is trying to add those extra dimensions to something which is usually just flat. Well, that's... We could uh, end the podcast there, don't you think? It is particularly strong. And fantastic- I started strong. I've got nothing else to do now. <laughs> fantastic analysis of form as well, I might say, which, I of know. course, we know the importance of. Um, and there's nothing like an on, on long running joke, is <laughs> No, it? there's not at all. Uh, oh, non-regular listeners. Uh, we'll so, that. as though this were a church and he a priest preparing to intone a mass... And I think this is quite an interesting reference as the stanza goes on by by the narrator. Um, so is it this idea that this space is somewhere that's very reverential for him, that's very kind of has a holy nature, a place, a quiet space for reflection, for a connection with a higher power, a higher being? Mm-hmm. Is it that he sees his role as a photographer in a vocational religious sense where he is mm-hmm. serving a higher purpose, he's doing something for the good of society, he's, you know, He's improving and, and he's, he's kind of being very altruistic here. Or is it perhaps there's an ironic element here? And I'm, my mind is drawn back to the quotation you know, by Karl Marx, religion is the opium of the masses. Is it that actually he sees himself as part of an industry which manipulates and exploits people who are suffering and also to an extent manipulates us, the, the kind of the viewers of these images yeah. who pay for them? And is it that we're all, he's kind of part of the cycle of manipulation and kind of control? Mm. Um, and I think that... This idea of church and him kind of giving a mass is 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 perhaps suggesting that. Yeah, that is interesting. And then there's also that idea that of him, um, it's the ritualistic nature of developing, yeah. developing a photo as a routine that he's that he's comfortable with and he knows what he's doing and he, he's kind of um, losing himself in in that ritual. Yeah. And it's a kind of it's a therapeutic kind of process for him. Um, yeah, and again, it's that it's that I've just got that image of him being locked inside yeah. his own yeah. mind, and that's his kind of way of dealing with it so significant that's all happening in in this in this room uh so final line in the stanza uh what do you have to say on that one al so it's it reads belfast beirut non-pen all flesh is grass um so it's listing 20th century conflicts but i'm going to look at the metaphor all flesh is grass specifically yeah. now um so i said in uh, not the not the last episode, the episode before about the idea of ten a vehicle ground. Whenever you see a simile or a metaphor, mm-hmm. put them together. What do they have in common? So this Emily informed me just a few minutes ago. It's actually a biblical quote. Yeah, it's um, a biblical allusion here from Isaiah, which means all life is transitory. Okay. All life is brief. All life will end. Yeah, exactly. So we so we can look at this idea, and this is something that we that we've looked at in previous podcasts about the um, the kind of the temporary nature of human existence. Anyway, the, that was something that was huge in romanticism, um, but also. Here it's, it takes you'd a, fit romanticism into well, it's, it's, it's been a few episodes, so. I think it's um, but this is this is kind of like a. It's related directly to the way that we see death 
um, and the way that we are kind of like exposure to death, we're kind of simultaneously exposed to it, but also completely desensitized and separate yeah. from it. Mm. Um, so if we just look, so we've got this idea of, of grass in itself, it grows and then is cut and then is replaced and grows and cuts, replaces that kind of cyclical nature of it. So the idea that lives and generations, they could continue to be yeah. cut away. Um, but there's also, I, I think if we, if we take that further, um, there's, there's large amounts of it. Um, it all blends into one, just as Bel- Belfast, Beirut, Phnom uh, Penh all blends into one for him. Um, and also this idea of life in these, in these conflicts, life being cheap, it's being yeah. worthless. Uh, and I think that this is something you can talk about when you look at this poem. You're looking, and again, you're looking for Marx at AO3 when the, the context isn't particularly that rich. If you look at what, how the, the way that a modern reader or the, um, like a modern audience um, sees death and sees life, uh, that expression life is cheap is often applied to places where there's a high murder rate or there's a yeah. war going on. You know, people die all the time and it's normal. It becomes normal. So life's worth is almost dictated by proximity. So it's kind of that could be cultural proximity or geographical. Yeah. Geographical. So I always think that whenever you so if there's a and you have to be, you have to be quite coarse when you talk about these kind of, that kind of things. But if there's a terrorist attack in the UK, and you're going yeah. to speak about this, is exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Then. So if a terrorist attack in the UK and one person dies, or twenty people die, or thirty people, or fifty people, if they're killed, it's it's obviously extremely shocking. Yeah. We feel it very personally. Um, we, the nation mourns, and it becomes and it it's kind of part of the national conversation for weeks, if not months. Yeah. If three hundred people are killed in a bomb in the Middle East. Do we have that same reaction? And I, I think we don't. Yeah. I mean, it's not, and it's not that those three hundred lives. Uh, it's not that, that 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 killing was any less violent or any less brutal or senseless. It's just that in our context, as where we are, yeah. as and the readers of the of the the war, who the viewers of the war photographers' um, pictures, we just have that kind of different, a kind of differentiated. Um, value for lives which are which we see as we see as geographically or culturally close yeah. compared to those who obviously seem more distant. I find it really interesting. I think both of you, when when we're discussing this poem and, and the character of this war photographer, have much less sympathetic views to him than I do. I've I've always thought this is someone who's really grappling with his conscience. Who feels like he now straddles two worlds. He straddles the war zones that he yeah. makes his living in and the home that he now feels he can't align himself with. Um, and I see this as real evidence for it. I like the way that he's shown that respect in the opening stanza by giving these people the funeral they probably didn't have, by mm-hmm. setting them out in ordered rows, by treating them with respect, with dignity. One by one, you get this sense that he is laying out all the photos, even though by the end of the poem we find out the editor only wants to pick five or six, five or six and they're not seven. even important. But we see that he almost gives them that respect, that dignity they never had. And then I found that final line of the first stanza quite telling. Belfast, Beirut, Phnom Penh. Now, they're like geosyllabic words, so made of two syllables. They're quite harsh on the tongue. We've obviously got those plosive sounds. I can almost feel his anger coming through. Mm-hmm. As if the way that reads to me is like the way his itinerary read when he read his job description. Well, first you go to Belfast, Beirut, Phnom Penh. That was his job description. He had a job to do. That's what they sent him to do. There was no mention of the suffering, the PTSD, the horrid nightmares that would follow, the suffering that he'd see. It was just sold to him as, this is your job, go and do it. And I almost see that all flesh is grass as almost mocking the idea that when he's come back, people, like you said, don't have that cultural connection mm-hmm. to the deaths he's experienced. Mm-hmm. No one's probably saying, oh, I understand, mate, you know, 
it must have been awful what you went through. It's yeah. that idea of, ah, all flesh is grass. And yeah. I almost read those lines as if it's like, he was told, do this, check, do that, check, non-pen, check, never mind. Mm. Everyone's going to die one day anyway. I think there's a, a, a quite something important to consider here as well. All flesh is grass. Who's that directed to? With the way this poem is told and it not necessarily having a first-person narrator, there's an ambiguity there. All flesh is grass. Is he telling that to himself? Is he is he telling that to uh, kind of like people who might be listening to his thoughts, or is he mm-hmm. is that this just what he's been told? He's just repeating yeah. it. I can always say that as his justification for it. It's just a weird. It's, it's but also probably what he's experienced because if I'm just thinking about geographically, so you've got Belfast, which is in Europe, yeah. you've got Beirut, which is in the Middle East, and you've got uh, Phnom Penh, which is in Southeast Asia. It's talking about the universality of conflict is everywhere. Yeah. Uh, there's no escape from it, um, and oh, regardless gosh. of wherever it happened, wherever it is, you know, people, people, people live, people yeah, die. Yeah, yeah. yeah, everyone bleeds red, all flesh is grass. Absolutely, there's many different ways to interpret, it, and I think it's important you take your own stance on it. Absolutely. Uh, so as we go on to the second stanza, uh, I just want to pick out the, the just quite a, a small but important word in solution slop and trays beneath his hands, which did not tremble then, though seem to now. And it's just a really, to an extent, it's an obvious word to pick out, but it's, it is of great importance. It's this verb tremble. So his hands are trembling now. And there's something to consider here in terms of, does this represent perhaps fear at what he's done and kind of he's like experiencing the shock? of kind of the things he's seen and now it's only finally dawning on him. Because I think for these photographers, they don't think about what's happening when they're in the moment. Well, they're not allowed to act, are yeah. they? I think, uh, I might be wrong here, but when you sign up to be a war photographer, you're not actually allowed to intervene in the conflict. You're mm-hmm. not there as a soldier. You're mm-hmm. there to document and to yeah. report and it's your duty to stand back. And you almost see this moment where he takes those photographs in his hand and sees what he's been responsible for mm-hmm. almost. Like, he used to be so distant from it behind the lens. He had that camera to distance him from the action. Now, as he's literally handling the images of the yeah. dead, it dawns he, them. it's like that image from Remains. Yeah. The blood is yeah. now on yeah. his hands. Yeah. And he's the custodian of that moment. That's There's no one else. Oh, I like that. He's the only one who's left. Um, so he was in that, he's in that moment with you know combatants and civilians and victims and they're either dead or gone. He's the one who's got that record yeah. and he's the only one who left to tell their story. Um, for a more negative interpretation of him, I'd go to this idea of tremble. So when he's in the moment, why doesn't he tremble? And I would say possibly it's because he, he's almost high in adrenaline as he's doing this. Yes. He's enjoying the thrill of the danger of the pursuit. He knows he's taking these risks and that he's doing something, you know, that he might see as brave or that, you know, that's kind of certainly, you know, a risk, a risk taker. But now that he's removed from that situation, you know, as that adrenaline withdraws from his body, you know, when you're in a dangerous situation, your body acts an instinct. But now he's starting to tremble as yeah. that adrenaline withdraws. I think for him, it's kind of now that he's removed from the danger of the situation, what he's been doing dawns on him. And perhaps on a selfish level, he misses that adrenaline and that's why he's going to go back out. He's, uh, he's a risk taker and a, a thrill chaser. You can always see that with that dismissive sort of adjective there, rural yeah. England, as if what does home Dull. have to offer yeah. now? Yeah. Yeah. Although I've read that in the past and seen that's his sanctuary, his home. So depends, I think, almost how I'm perceiving the war photographer. Mm. Is, it really affects my interpretation of a lot of this poem. Mm-hmm. I like that phrase, ordinary pain, as well, um, as he's looking at the kind of like the, the everyday stresses that everybody goes through, which you will be experiencing now, yeah. listener, as you get ready for this, <laughs> as you get ready for your exam. Um, it's the kind of stresses that we put so much stock into as if they're the end of the world. Um, and yet he's seen the, the actual 
the the face of suffering yeah. Yeah. in the places in the places that he's been. To. Well, he belittles that ordinary pain, doesn't he? Says because well, simple weather can dispel that. Yeah. You know, yeah. a sunny day can cheer you up if you're yeah. just having a bad day or you've got too much revision. That must be tough. But he's there. He's seen it. And that next line comes on. He's there in fields which don't explode beneath the feet of running children in a nightmare heat. And I think we've got to draw the link there between rural England and this idea that he's out in the open where he can perhaps compose himself, consider mm. how he feels about his job. And obviously rural connotes into there being, there being grass out there. But when he looks at the grass, he can't help but be taken back mm. to those images of children running through exploding fields. Um, I think there's quite a purposeful sort of contextual point here. Um, obviously, Al talked before about Belfast, Beirut, Phnom Penh, all being 20th century war zones. I also think they're all quite synonymous with quite famous war photography, that mm. any reader, when hearing those words, can almost envisage the photograph that matches that conflict. That image, yeah, and I think, especially with running children in a nightmare heat, I think that's a direct referral to the napalm attack in Vietnam. A photographer called Nick Alt uh, photographed children when basically the South Vietnamese army dropped napalm on their own people and it burnt the clothes off people. And as they ran, there's this wonderfully striking image yeah. of a Very child. Disturbing image. Of, yeah. yeah, completely. Um, I think I would say probably the most famous image from war that yeah, I can yeah, think of yeah. in terms of how media reports war. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really purposeful illusion there from Duffy to, to force for quite famous conflict zones, which aren't famous for the gravity of the murders there, but are quite famous in the fact that they've been reported and potentially glossed over yeah, by yeah. the Western yeah. world, viewing them yeah. between the bath and pre-lunch beers, because yeah. really, do we care? And that's what she's pointing the message at here. Well, I think that's, and again, it's that, you were talking before about uh, Duffy being quite polemical in the way that yeah. she approaches poems and she has to get a message across. Um, so, she, so why is it that images of, of children running um, that changes the, the kind of public psyche. So when, yeah. the, when that image became publicised, um, then the Vietnam War, uh, I mean, it was already unpopular, but it, it did have a huge impact mm. in public opinion on the war. Um, and also, we spoke before about, in, pre, in previous episodes so on London, we were talking about the image of the child and what does that represent. Yeah. So why do, poets, why do poets pick children as images? Um, yeah. Why do they talk about images? Because they are, they are they're innocent they're completely innocent, but they're also what we said. This kind of like the seat and source of all potential. Um, and if you and if, if that's something that suffers, or if that's something that's seen to uh, suffer violence, then that is a, that's exceptionally disturbing. That evokes that visceral response in yeah. the reader, and just the same as it as evokes a visceral response in the reader of a poem, it does the same with viewers of an image. Mm -hmm. So we talk about that image of of non pen, but I'm, I'm call to mind the um, the image the of the, 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 little, the, the young boy, boy in, uh, yeah. yeah, on the beach in Turkey, and, and how that shifts the yeah, dialogue enormously on ref on the asylum situation. Yeah. 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 Suddenly, migrants become refugees, yeah. and uh, it completely changed the, the public perception of that of that, and that's something that happened very recently. Yeah. This is kind of like a something that happens that repeats itself generational yeah. and uh yeah it's just a, a kind of a reality of conflict because children will always be caught up in it and the and viewers will always feel sympathy for children mm -hmm. always it's just that guaranteed kind of emotional kind of grappling if it takes you back i know we're, we're drawing links here but the fact we're now in our seventh poem it's, it's natural to see this but the idea of the innocent being caught up in conflict. Mm -hmm. Like you talk about the links to London there with the children as the victims, yeah. but I see that as almost the exact same image as the hair being caught up in the warfare yeah. in Bayonet Charge when we mm -hmm. have the hair in a circle. The mm -hmm. idea that war is cyclical, people will be caught up in the conflict. 
Here it's a child. And the naive he's child burning. In, the naive child in Poppies who goes out after, after playing Eskimo Kisses with his mum. And yeah. Oh. yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's that, it's... A lamb to the slaughter. Exactly, yeah. Um, so we're just going to look on to the next stanza now. We've got this this first line. Would you say the volta of the poem here? Something is happening. Something's happening, possibly. I hadn't considered that, but that is a, that is a good point. I'll come on to argue that. You see well, your point. Absolutely. Well, you're now going to undermine it with a much better point, but I I'll know, do my that's, best. That's my job. That's why you won't invite me to these podcasts. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so I just want to talk about the role that these sort of you know, short, simple sentences play in this poem. And there's three that we're going to look at now. And something is happening. That's the start of the third stanza. At the end of the first, we've got all flesh is grass. The start of the second, we, yeah, he has a job to do. Now, usually when I'm teaching simple sentences, I talk about how... As a persuasive technique, they are a way to clarify um, your kind of the degree of the simplicity and clarity of your thought. Mm. This must stop. Couldn't be clearer. So usually it conveys certainty. And when he says it in the second stanza and in the first stanza, you're like, all flesh is grass. Well, okay, our, our guy knows what he thinks. He has a job to do. No apologies, no mistakes there. He knows what he thinks. That certainty, that sense of duty he's got, mm. yeah. But then we realise, I think we see that it's something of a facade at the start of that third stanza. Something is happening. So he's trying to sound certain, but actually the content of the words undermines what he's saying here. Something is happening. What's happening? And as we see, he goes on and he's kind of seeing these hallucinatory kind of images and he's kind of freaking out. We see that actually he isn't certain at all. Everything he's been saying is just being kind of this, you know, weak visage of confidence that's not there. All flesh, flesh is grass. Grass, I should say. That's what he's telling himself. It's not necessarily what he believes. He has a job to do. Why does he have jobs to do? Does he really believe that? Or is that just what, what he tells told, himself yeah. to get through this ordeal? And he's, he's, he's grasping at certainty mm-hmm. to justify what he's doing, what he's seeing, and why he's going through this perpetual torment. And he's not got it anymore. He's lost that perhaps love of what he's doing. And I think those simple sentences, slowly but surely through their repetition, pull away that fake confidence and reveal like a very that. uncertain yeah. man. I see it as the Volta. I really do like that point. I'm not now going to beat it. I don't think. I'll try. Um, I do see this as the Volta, the turning point of the poem and the fact that before he was waiting for these mm-hmm. photos to develop. If you take my analogy before that at this moment for the first two standards, the photographs are in two dimensional. Yeah. They are waiting to develop. And just at the Volta here with something is happening, you start to see these two dimensional images sort of become living, haunting beings. So we almost see this this third dimension arise here where the fa- stranger's features faintly start to twist before his yeah. eyes, a half-formed ghost. I even see the use of, of that sort of adjective half-formed to describe that idea that these memories are haunting him. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he's seen so many faces in the moments of death that yeah. he can't match one to the next. Mm. I, I, for, the, for that phrase, that a stranger's fe- features... And then he, onto the half-formed ghost. What I always think of the strangest features is, who is the stranger? Yes. Is it someone that he took a photo of who he didn't really pay attention to and is now only really seeing for the first time? Or is it, in fact, actually, as he develops his, these photos underneath this murky kind of reflective water, is he actually mm-hmm. seeing the reflection of his own face? Oh, I like that. And when that. he sees himself, he, can't he sees the stranger. Yeah. And that line, half-formed ghost, is it actually that he sees himself half living in the la- land of the yeah. living, half living in the land of the dead. Because like you said earlier, is, yeah. straddling between these two worlds, not belonging to either of them, forever alone in this dark room. Yeah, lovely. I think, yeah, I've had people say that in the past, that idea that he is the half-formed ghost in the poem. Mm-hmm. And, and his memories are haunting him. He doesn't know who he is. He straddles his identity between rural England and the conflict zones. But I think if we continue to read, what I really like here is this is where the memories 
and the distorted reality and nature of what he's seen sort of come to life. Escape from his mind. That idea. So we see it first go from two-dimensional to three-dimensional when the ghost forms, and then we hear the cries. So the use of sound there adds that fourth dimensional. Like, readers, you think this is just flat on a page on a newspaper, but for me, there's a real moving image there. Mm -hmm. For me, there is the sound that accompanies that image. So you might experience the horror for a moment and turn off the TV or flip the newspaper. But that is something that lives and exists with me and haunts me. And just thinking back to Remains and, you know, Gardman Troman's comment about he goes through this situation every day. Not only does this, you know, war photographer probably play over these moments again, but he literally stares at the images. He then has to develop them and relive it again. Exactly. And there's a real clear um, kind of connection to be made with Remains in the final line of that stanza as well, where he says, and how the blood stained into foreign dust mm. um, where it, and obviously it's, we're talking about that, that line in Remains where he said he's, he's um, not well we were you weren't you yeah, sorry, yeah. <laughs> we are now talking about that <laughs> uh, all, all three of us and our listeners um, we're talking talking about that line I, can, can I remember the, the full line because it's kind of like the one sun, where he's like, sun, oh, sun smothered line yeah it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a mouthful but it's kind of spitting out that the idea that the that, like the, the the raw emotion that he's feeling, but also well, you listen to the podcast. Yeah, I, can tell. I, I took a lot That's from That's one it. listener. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he's he's talking about how the fact that he left this guy dead where he was. Yeah. However, he's still with him. Yeah. Um, and here you see the same image. He sees the blood stain into the foreign dust. The foreign dust is something separate to him. It's the other. Um, it's something that he doesn't take with him. And yet, even that stain is something that stained him. It stained yeah. his psyche. It stained his memory. That's something that can't be removed. It's something that he can never really shake. And something Absolutely. actually, and obviously, he has to play over. He, does, he plays over it in his head, possibly, but he plays it over quite literally when he's um, going through this development process. Photos, yeah. Yeah. You see that real sort of stark image there, where he describes, and it, and I think this is where before we we sort of criticize the photographer, say, oh, he's got hundreds of images and recognize anyone, but here he says. He remembers the cries of this man's wife and how he sought approval without words to do what someone must. So you can imagine here you've got, a, you know, he's got a man dying on the floor. He uses his eyes, his empathetic skills as a human yeah. to look at the wife and say, I wish I could help you, but my job is to document this. And I, and I think it, it should be noted in this podcast that, you know, war photographers really do have an important role to play in capturing the reality of war and, and communicating it back home. We wouldn't understand probably a lot of what we do about conflict if it wasn't for those images. I mean, many of us watched for World War One Peter Jackson's mm-hmm. recreation of a lot of those images. And, yeah. and it was it brought a new dimension to a war that we've seen and heard about so many times, but to see yeah. that in moving colour changed our perception of it. It made those people real to us. Alex, mm. you even said, you know, I saw and I recognised a person who I saw in an interview then I saw in the image when they were dead later on. And that really haunts us as, as human beings with empathy. So, so I think he's saying, I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I have to. That's my job. It's my duty. So what I think, I almost want to disagree with you there. I mean, it's, I'm almost going back on myself in my last Duchess and I don't have any empathy or sympathy for this character in this moment. Oh, really? Or at least not that much. That surprises me. It, well, I try to empathise with all monsters, but with this guy, <laughs> I struggle a little bit. So oh. he... He's seen someone who's, you know, what's the quotation? He remembers the cries of this man's wife and how he sought approval without words to do what someone must. So there's this person dying and, you know, the person they love most is holding them and, and their grief is pouring out of them. And his instinct is to take a photo. It's not his instinct, it's his job. It is his instinct. Mm. 
But remember, his hands is now his hands tremble, but they didn't then. His first mm. instinct is to take a photo. And yes, it's his job, but to what extent does your job overriding human compassion? And look that at the sign, yeah. to do what someone must. Why must someone do it's it? Self-exoneration. Why yeah. is that photo so important? That is fueled with self-importance. This photo is going to change the world. No, it's not. It's also quite paradoxical because he, he, he talks about how his job has no impact yeah. or yeah. a very minimal impact. And yet he still, he still puts it. himself yeah, out there to take those shocking pictures, there, right? of course. And, and how he sought approval without words to do what he must. So he sought approval without words? I don't buy that. That doesn't sound right to me at all. I know they don't speak the sound language. So what, he gave her a thumbs up or a wave? Like, there's nothing he could have done. It would never... There was nothing he could have said that would have made it okay to invade that entirely personal moment for his own benefit. Yeah. I don't... I don't. I suppose you're right. If you think very practically about... I mean, I do have sympathy for the words for you. If you think very practically about this, the wife is so busy crying and comforting yeah. her dying slash dead husband, she's probably not looking around to see if anyone's taking a photograph of it. Okay. And give her approval. Yeah. Okay? So I, I see where you go. Okay, so let's move on then to the final stanza, the fourth stanza, so, 100 Agonies in Black and White. I really, really like this line. And again, it's just the beautiful thing poetry does so often is surprise us with, with the word choices. So we look at this line, 100 Agonies in Black and White. And it, that 100 Agonies, so you know, they're not called pictures, they're not called images, they're called Agonies. And that's just such a simple but powerful noun to choose instead of pictures that it really strikes through that these are moments of agony that he is immortalized yeah. with one inst- instantaneous click. And also, of course, there's a double meaning. Is it the agony of the people that's taking them? Is it the agony of kind of human existence and the, the ceaseless inevitability of war? Or is it perhaps the, the personal agony that each photo represents as every time he takes one, he chips away at any modicum of self-respect and integrity that he has? You're right. Um, I find it interesting the juxtaposition there between black and white. It takes me back to that previous point where he, he sort of, He's sick of people telling him yeah. all life is transitory. Don't worry about it. Everyone's going to die. Just like, I was told I had a job to do. Yeah. I was told it was going to be easy. I was told war yeah. was black and white. It's good. It's bad. Mm-hmm. A lot of people tend to think that, you know, there's a, there's a winning side. There's a losing side. There's the right people. There's the wrong people. But he thinks, people told me war was black and white, but here I am living and existing in that whole grey area in between yeah. where yeah. there is no right or wrong so we can debate whether he was right or wrong to do that but in war really there is no polar opposite black Mm. white right wrong and i think that's represented state of nuance yeah Yeah. i like the way you put that very nice uh so then (laughs) (laughs) it's a bit patronizing it's good it's good that we're supportive of each other's analysis though i've always respected that about the network so moving on to the next line then okay so then we hear then we see so on the next line we see the really tragic reality and the sort of futility of all of these agonies he's pictured, all of the suffering he's been through. We see the futility and the fact that from these hundred agonies, and by the way, I think these hundred agonies were only just a small portion of the thousands that he set out in ordered mm-hmm. rows at the yeah. start of the poem. From these hundred, his editor will only pick out five or six for Sunday's supplement. Now, a supplement, for those of you who don't know, is just an extra part that comes with a paper. So this isn't front page news. This isn't headline. This isn't even a significant part of the paper. This is a part of an added bit to the paper, the supplement. Like, these people's suffering is not even making the headlines. Yeah, like the next page is going to be the latest shampoo Russell Brand is using and 33 ways to reduce your kale intake. Like, like (laughs) supplements are not really... 
Well, no, <laughs> I mean, increase your kale intake. I know, yeah. I mean decrease. <laughs> Um, but no, I, I think like that idea of supplement is such an intentional kind of like, you know, like snide kind of like, it's not even in the main newspaper. Yeah. It's in the pullout that's going to be yeah. left in GPs and hairdressers for the next 13 years. Yeah. Moving on. Okay. So we have now this idea that, yes, that part of the image will only come through the supplement. That part of the paper, usually, to be honest, when I pick up a newspaper to read, the supplement usually falls out on the floor and I've been it before I've even opened it. Yeah. That's usually what happens to supplements. They're just a part that you didn't buy the newspaper for. And, and that's recognised in the last couple of sentences. The reader's eyeballs prick with tears between the bath and pre-lunch bits. As if to say that as people, and I think this is really addressed as us, the reader, the modern reader, we are the recipients of these images. We are the society who these images are supposedly meant to be informing. Yeah. We, are, we are the audience. Yet we will maybe take a moment to look at those images in between well we've got to go have our bath and then obviously we've got to go not for beers but beers before lunch those those momentary moments we have with friends before lunch we might take a couple of minutes out of our day to take a look at those images i think this links with al's earlier point about the way we become desensitized to these images the idea that it's just five or six and we don't want it we don't want want too many of them and you know when, when you when so many people see adverts by Red Cross or Oxfam, yeah. which show these gut wrenching, visceral visceral images and these heartbreaking anecdotes of these children's lives torn apart by poverty, war, and famine. Yeah. And we what do we do? We switch the channel, or we mm. kind of go, oh god, that's sad. And then you're back to eating your cocoa pops or whatever it is. It it's something that doesn't really. It doesn't. It's ridiculous. It doesn't actually affect you in the way it should. We become desensitized to it because yeah. we see it all the time. Well, Duffy uses that verb prick does it yeah. just show how we don't cry we don't shed real tears for these people it's on the our it's eyes on the just well with tears is that mm. like that needle like that minuscule amount of pity we have yeah what yeah. the idea that oh okay now back on and it's, it's like my a, day it's schedule. like a artificially yeah um it's a, induced emotion yeah it's, it's like not a, a real it's a nod to you caring without having to actually yeah. commit to crying yeah. you're kind of like well, i'm a good person because i felt sad but mm. i'm not actually going to let it affect my day because you know i've got to go out and Pretty pre-lunch beers and all these things. They want to live their life as normal. Yeah, and the, and the tears and beers, the rhyme there, like, trivialises yeah. everything mm. else that's come in that poem. The fact that, you know, it is going to be but a moment between those mm-hmm. jovial moments of everyday life. You know, these are the ordinary pains he was talking yeah. about. How can this war photographer now reconnect with the society that is more bothered about going for a bath, pre-lunch beers? I don't know what order those things are happening. It seems weird. But... <laughs> <laughs> That's what they're doing. And it seems weird that the the war photographer obviously feels he cannot reconnect with the society that yeah. will not understand the suffering he's seen. And, probably, and his yeah. his lifelong vocation, if we can call it that, yeah, friend, all yeah. the suffering he's seen is but a moment in between their lives. Mm. And then we've got that final image. For, so from the aeroplane, he stares impassively at, at where he earns his living and they do not care. So you were making that point earlier, Em, about the kind of the aeroplane and straddling the two worlds. I thought that was quite an interesting image. Yeah, I think it's really significant that symbolically he ends on that aeroplane. We don't know whether he's going to the conflict yeah. zone or returning, but that idea that where he feels most comfortable or the only place he belongs. I know we talked before about the dark room being some area of solace for him, but in fact, I think it's this final image of him being in the air impassively so without action without thought but between the two worlds that is where he belongs because he doesn't belong in rural england anymore because everyone there is desensitized Mm -hmm. no one knows what he's witnessed 
people might judge him for what he does. You know, we've clearly had those conversations here as people in rural England, you know, we judge him for what he's doing. We question his motives. We, we might say, well, why, how could you do that without intervening? Yeah. And he clearly doesn't belong in the war zone because he sees them yeah. as full of mm-hmm. anguish. So we find that that image there where he ends in between the two places, I find that really, really powerful. And I just think that adverb impassively is really telling at the end of the poem as well. So not only is he kind of shown to be caught between these two worlds, he inhabits both and yet inhabits neither of them. Um, But it's also this idea of him, he's almost kind of been railing against the fact that people are desensitised to to the conflicts which he's trying to to portray for them. And yet he himself is actually very desensitised. He becomes desensitised by it. He is is without emotion, he's without expression. He just looks down and 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 there's nothing. And you see, and it's that image of the half-formed ghost that he sees forming in front of him. It's a stranger. this this job has taken everything out of him, um, and he's left without a country. He's left without a home. He's validated yeah. that, distance, and he's left yeah. without an identity. So we're talking about kind of like this is obviously a poem that, that's rooted in conflict, but we're talking about the power of identity. Of course, this is yeah. a man who has possibly lost his humanity, and as yeah. a result, has lost his. Well, identity he's only known well. in the titles war photographer. Mm. He's known by his job. He lives by his job, and, yeah. and we assume he'll probably die by his job. And the mm-hmm. idea that you know he has nothing else to him here. And just, again, in terms of structure, that the choice to kind of end it on that image is so deliberate to kind of really drive home the kind of the, this, this sad, tragic tale of this war photographer. Mm-hmm. One last critical note. These, these last four words, and, or last five, and they do not care. For me, that always struck a really petulant tone. He kind of, he's, he's shifting the blame. He's kind of like, society, you know, oh, they're awful. Mm-hmm. They don't care about these images. Without really accepting that he is part of the industry that has yeah. made us indifferent and desensitised. Yeah, that's to these the images. irony there, isn't it? At the end, that yeah. we are desensitised because we've seen so many mm-hmm. of these images, and almost mm-hmm. how how much suffering can a human? You know, if we did actually cry every time we saw the news or the paper, or yeah. turn the radio on, or, never get anything you, done. You yeah. wouldn't, would you? And and that's the thing, isn't it? And I think again, Ted, it's important to note that difference between the speaker yeah. and the poet. And I almost hear Duffy coming through for this yeah. final line. This isn't the war, the war photographer I pitch who's suspended, literally metaphorically yeah. in the air there. He's suspended through between those areas. And this is Duffy saying, and they, and by they, by the way, she means you, the reader. And you do not care mm. about the agonies in black and white, about the children running the light mehi. You don't even care about the war photographer because you're bothered maybe a little bit about the pictures in two-dimensional, you definitely don't think about the man behind the lens. So I see that as Duffy's resounding message there at the end, that as a nation, we are becoming desensitised to this. And so, uh, once again, that's all the uh, time we have for analysis for today. So I thank you for listening, and it's goodbye from me, Ted. It's goodbye from me, Emily. And it's goodbye from me, Alex. We will see you later, English nerds. Bye.